0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Learning Curve. It is an interesting day up here in Beantown, where I am sitting. I'm so happy to have my good friend here to talk about this and so many more things with me, Gerard Robinson. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well in beautiful but wet Charlottesville, Virginia.
0: Beautiful but wet. Well, it's always beautiful. I've never been there. Always beautiful. You know,
1: you've never. You haven't happens, invited
0: me. I got nothing. <laughs>
1: Oh, okay, I'll take that as a hint that I need to protect that box. But, you know, it was 90 degrees a few days ago, it was 80 before that, and now it's just raining. But it keeps it beautiful and green. So if yeah, nothing else, yeah. is breaking the humidity. And that's a good there thing because go. my hair... Buffs up when the humidity
0: is there. Well, we know how you worry about your hair, Gerard. You know, you're exactly. between the two of us. You worry <laughs> most about your hair. I am here in Beantown where the weather is quite beautiful after a very hot weekend. I came home, Gerard. I was traveling in an undisclosed location last week and I came home to COVID in the house. Oh, my goodness. Really? After Yeah. You know, here we go. You can't escape it. I don't know. Maybe you can. I hope you do. Actually, I have to say, this is my husband who, as you know, Gerard is in the medical field, so he sees upwards of 60 patients a day. So we're just considering this a miracle that this is the first time it happened, right? And he's fine. He's absolutely fine. It's a little bit of a man cold, but uh, yeah, everything's good here. (laughs) Lots going on to talk about in our fair city today, though. As you know, Pioneer Institute released a report a couple of months ago. I'm not saying that we had anything to do with it, but calling for change in the Boston public schools. And today was a big day. Actually, yesterday was a big day because the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education released a second audit of the Boston public schools and found, surprise, 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 that not many things, in fact, very few things, in fact, almost nothing has gotten better. A lot of things have gotten worse. As I think you know, we talked about a couple weeks ago, Boston recently had to close a school. It will be closed because of uncovered sexual abuse that had been ongoing in the school. So lots of stuff going on in this city. We're going to see how the political winds blow. But boy, oh boy, it's looking like some big changes ahead for the largest school system in the Commonwealth. So I'm thinking about that. I'm also thinking about, I'm just going to segue right into my story of the week, Gerard, because whenever I think about a place like Boston and so many parents who are, I'm just going to use the word, trapped in schools that they don't want to be in, they wish they had a different choice, I think about school choice, I think about the relative lack of school choice that we have here in the Commonwealth. I think about the fact that we have managed to put charter schools so far on the rails that we're not establishing new ones, despite some of the excellent ones that we have. And to some extent, I think about what our friend Colleen Fronick has written about this week in The Hill. And the title of Colleen's article is, School Choice Can Take Political Fights Out of Education. So, The main argument here, Gerard, the overarching argument is that if parents can send their kids to a school that aligns with their values, to a school that aligns with the way they see the world, to a school that aligns with their beliefs. Now, I, as an advocate of school choice, would also put guardrails around that and say, we need to think about how we provide high quality options that are also mission-driven and that allow parents the kind of education that they're seeking for their kids, right? But that school choice can help to mute some of these terrible political battles that we're seeing around education. I don't have to tell you what those battles are. And I have to say that to some extent, I agree with Colleen, and I want to quote her here. She says, the current winner-takes-all system, as in sending your kids to a district and let's try and outdo each other by not allowing school choice, right, forces parents to engage in political battles to get their children the education they think is best, But when one group of parents wins, that means another group loses. And this point, thank you, Colleen, I think is a really, really good one. So I'm thinking a lot lately about how many parents, especially in states like mine, where we have such limited choices, are on the losing end. It's not even just of the politics, Gerard, but just on the losing end of being able to provide their kids with the one thing that most parents really hold dear, right? That it makes a difference in life, and that is an education that fits the needs of each kid and each family. Now, I would just call out one caveat here, <laughs> and I would love your take on this, Gerard, because I know that my opinion on this is strong, but it is my opinion. And that is that I'm 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 a little put off that some advocates of school choice in the past couple of years have advocated for school choice as a means of escaping public school districts because there's a claim that public school districts are somehow teaching inappropriate material or not doing right by kids in other ways. Now, I'm not on board with that argument for school choice. I believe deeply in choice for choice's sake. And I do believe, I'm in alignment with Colleen here, right, that one of the best reasons for choice is that every family and parent should have the means as Let's be clear, wealthy families do, to choose the school that meshes with their worldview, mission, vision, all of those good things. If you want to be able to choose a faith-based school, please, by all means, do it. You shouldn't have to be a wealthy person to access that kind of education. But I do become a little upset when we say that the reason for school choice should be escaping districts. Because, by the way, there are a lot of great school districts out there doing a lot of great things, and no form of education is without a point of view. So some parents are choosing districts because of the things that they're teaching, and many of them aren't teaching the quote unquote radical content that so many critics want to talk about, right? But we need to support all types of schools across the board. We need to be advocates for kids, period. And that's where I come down. But I really appreciated this story in the Hill this week It was a good way, I think, to connect school choice and how to bring the tone in this country down just a bit. What do you think, Gerard?
2: When you
1: mentioned exit, it brought me back to a grad school class that I had some years ago where we looked at, I think it was Albert Hirschman's book, Exit, Voice and Loyalty. And the author talks about the importance of quality goods. And when they deteriorate, what do you do? And so there's an exit or the voice option. I do think some parents, and in fact, I don't think this is new, going back to the founding of charter schools in Minnesota or the urban-based, what we call the voucher program in Milwaukee, there was surely a group of stakeholders in the legislature and also families who say, we need an exit out of traditional public schools or public education in general. So there's that point. But I agree with you, some people are using it politically and not strategically, and there's a difference. The families 30 years ago, 31 years ago, who wanted to exit, it was life or death for some of them. For some of the teachers, it was professional calling and they wanted to practice their craft in different ways. So exit for them meant strategy. For some people, it's strictly about politics. And so on that front, that will be with us for a long time, but we can't let that group define what school choice is about because it, A, gives critics more fodder to say, see, they simply want to leave democratic schools and go to, you fill in the blank, instead of saying, guess what? This is a country of choice. We seem to want to celebrate choice in a lot of ways, except when it really comes for education. So great article. I'm with you. And I also must say, going back to the article, what you mentioned earlier, kudos to you, for the report that you wrote about receivership. Kudos to the Pioneer Institute for publishing it. And I say that because America is a stronger place, Massachusetts in particular, because you have think tanks like the Pioneer Institute and scholars like you. For a host of reasons, you're giving a lot of academic freedom, as some of your colleagues who you went to grad school with who are now professors may not have either because pre-tenure politics or even with tenure just some of the canceling that comes along with taking a position that someone can see as anti-public school with think tanks we can think and do so i just want to give a shout out to you thank um, you for that work and who knows there's been two audits and i believe from your report if there's two audits that at least puts on the table the idea of receivership. So maybe- Something's
0: will, gonna happen. I don't know if it'll be full-blown receivership, but
1: I do something think- Something um, is on the way. It'll be something. Well, as we talk about school choice, my article, in fact, is about charter schools. And it's from charter schools from a state we rarely talk about, and that is New Mexico. And what most people may not know is that New Mexico enacted a charter law in 1993, making it one of the earliest states in the country to enact a charter law. According to data from the National Alliance for Charter Schools, approximately 97 charter schools in the state between 2018 and 19, roughly 26,000 students are enrolled. When you look at the score that the National Alliance provided to New Mexico, out of 240 points, they received 152. And so there's some strong points and there's some challenges. Well, while that's taking place and while we know in Washington, D.C., there's a big debate in the White House regarding what should we do with the federal charter school program? There are advocates writing letters, there are others who are starting to protest. While that's taking place in New Mexico, get this, Democrats and Republicans found a way to come together and actually support charter schools. So in the past legislative session, and this is an article written by Matt Paul, who is the executive director of public charter schools in New Mexico, Matt identified a new law that took steps that's actually providing charter schools with more facility funding and options, and you and I know charter school facility funding is huge. As much as critics want to say that charter schools are sucking up all the money, one area where charter schools are not receiving funding in ways that other public school counterparts do relates to facilities. So we're glad to see that. Also the House and Senate unanimously passed and the governor signed a measure to increase spending. Not only for charter school facilities, but to create a new loan fund for permanent charter school facilities. So, a big win. Well, how do they do it? According to Matt, lawmakers in New Mexico don't spend their time solely at the Capitol building or in committee hearings. They actually listen to their constituents, people who live with them, people who shop at the same grocery stores they do, may attend the same faith community, or those institutions, but they found out two things. Number one, they found out that people actually believe charter schools matter. According to a pre-pandemic poll, families in one of the counties in New Mexico found that 77% believe that charter schools improve education in their community, and 75% want more charter school options. As Matt keenly pointed out, families like public schools. Charter schools are public schools, and Therefore, it should be one of the options that that people like and they want more of it. So when we often think about flyover states, whether you want to include New Mexico in there or not, maybe you can or can't. But what I will say is, while the East Coast and the West Coast are fighting over all kinds of things, as we're flying over states, let's land either personally, intellectually, or just in terms of a, ah, let's look at something differently. New Mexico, who is doing some pretty good things, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say hello to my Colleague Hannah Scandera, who's a former secretary in New Mexico, now president of the Daniels Fund, and also to my Pahara Aspen cohort sister Cara Bobroff, who is the founder of the Native American Community Academy in 2006 and the Naxa Inspired School Network, which includes charter schools. So that is my story. What are your thoughts?
0: I think that this is just, you know, anytime that we're talking about charter schools and it's fascinating stuff. I worry about our charter schools today, Gerard, as you know, <laughs> and, but I'm glad that we can keep talking about them, bringing them up here on this show, highlighting, you know, talking about the challenges and all the good stuff. And I thank you for that. It's really important stuff, Gerard. We've got a guest coming up, Gerard, who's not only going to talk to us about, she's going to merge our two stories. She's going to talk to us about the landscape in West Virginia. Have we had other guests on before from West Virginia, Jordan?
1: I don't believe so, but we've had someone with a West Virginia theme because that provided me an opportunity. Yes, because you got
0: to sing John Denver. Well, can you do it again, maybe?
1: Nope.
0: Oh, come Mm -mm. on. Maybe we'll get our next guest to do it. But we're going to talk to her about, I mean, so talk about a place that merges both of our stories, West Virginia. In one year passes a charter school law that might <clears throat> needed to be improved. And then another year passes the most expansive school choice program in the whole country. So I'm pretty excited to talk to our next guest who can sort of merge the themes of both of our stories of the week. And do you know who she is, Gerard, this person that we're going to be talking to? I do not. This mystery guest? No. We're gonna be talking to a woman who not only has a really phenomenal personal story about why she cares about education and how she came to the work, but somebody who was integral in expanding opportunities both in terms of charters and ESAs for West Virginia students. And her name is Senator Patricia Rucker. She is the chair of the Senate Education Committee in West Virginia and just a fierce warrior (laughs) for all things that can equal better opportunities for the kids and families of her state. So really, really excited to talk to her coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we are back, as promised, with an absolutely fabulous guest. We are speaking today with Senator Patricia Puertas-Rucker. She is a West Virginia state senator serving the 16th district. Her committee assignments include chair of the Education Committee and a member of the Agriculture and Rural Development banking and insurance, judiciary, health and human resources, natural resources, and confirmation committees. So clearly she has nothing at all to do. She is not a busy woman. She taught social studies in the Montgomery County Public Schools before starting a family and homeschooling her five children. Patricia is a first-generation American citizen born in Caracas, Venezuela, coming to the U.S., Montgomery County, Maryland, in 1981. She graduated from Trinity College in Washington, D.C. with a B.A. in history and a minor in Latin American studies. Senator Rucker, welcome to The Learning Curve.
2: Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be able to be with you yeah, well, we are thrilled. I think,
0: as Gerard knows, because he was at the same place, you participated last year in the National Summit on Education that is hosted annually by Excel and Ed. And I had the great pleasure of moderating a panel on which you served and in which you got to talk to those present about the passage of what is now the widest, most universal, Education Savings Account Program in America, in West Virginia, you were integral in making that happen. I just want to, for our listeners who might not be overly familiar, although if you listen frequently, you definitely know what an ESA is by now. It is a program that allows parents to direct the public funds allocated, the state funds allocated to their child's education, and it allows parents to choose from a range of educational services to put together the education that best serves their children. And you, Senator Rucker, made that happen. Could you share with our listeners the lessons learned from West Virginia, a state that, by the way, just a couple years ago, some might have said was not very choice friendly. (laughs) What, What could you tell other legislators across this country about your experience opening up choice for West Virginia families?
2: Well, I will say that the way you phrased it is putting it very mildly because when (laughs) I became education chair three years ago, there was zero education choice in the state of West Virginia. Through the efforts that we have had since 2019, we now have several uh, things like charter schools, open enrollment. But it was always my goal to get a broad-based, what I consider non-discriminatory education savings account where the money truly does follow the child wherever the parents think the child needs to be and so it's a parent-driven option and in terms of the lessons learned I can tell you that the number one most important thing is that you know why you are pushing for what you're pushing for and if you're Mm -hmm. pushing for education savings account it's because or should be because you believe that the parents are the best ones to make decisions as to where their child needs what they need for their education and you believe in the American the basic American dream that every single child deserves a good education and is worthy of getting the education that they need for themselves as individuals America was built on this principle of individualism that everyone has or should have the opportunity not necessarily the same outcomes but the same opportunity, and it's amazing to me that it is as difficult to get that translated into something as basic as universal education for all, which means that it needs to be as individualized as possible because not everyone is going to need the same things or is going to thrive in the same setting.
0: I love how you put that, and I, when I was a professor, I used to talk to my students about equality of opportunity being very different from equality of outcome, and quality of opportunity, I think, is really what you've done here. It's the best we can do. I want to ask you a little bit about the American dream, but I also want to ask you quickly about, now, when I think of West Virginia, yes, you have opened up choices for students and families in recent years, but until very recently, in fact, your ESA program will launch just this fall. Uh, parents are applying now. What you're up against is just people who have never known anything in the state except for public education, which means vested interests in sustaining that system and sustaining that status quo. And and to be clear, listeners, an ESA in no way dismantles a high-quality public education system either. That's not at all what this is about. It's about having both and how do you achieve both. But can you talk a little bit about those vested interests that you had to go up against who would have rather maintained the status quo? really briefly what was that fight like for you how did you leverage your powers of
2: persuasion (laughs) so yes clearly the teachers associations in the state of west virginia which have pretty much controlled all public education dollars for the entire history of west virginia were are very powerful and very strong and they managed through their efforts to derail every single attempt west virginia has ever had at any kind of school choice And in 2018 and 2019, back to back, we had major teacher strikes in the state that was meant to intimidate and scare legislators. When they had their last teacher strike in 2019 and they managed to stop the ESA that was very minor, very small, it was like many other states. I was trying to just start something just for a small, limited number of students, and they killed it, essentially, through their efforts. And with them were all of the usual, you know, the people who think that public education is the only way, all of those forces. I just had to tell them, like publicly announce, you all better get me unelected because if I come back, I'm going to make you regret killing that simple little ESA. And so I almost had to, in, in my state at least, had to prove that the unions were not as powerful as they say they are. And that meant going through another election cycle where I got reelected, despite all their best efforts to unseat me, to basically demonstrate to other legislators that, look, they're not as powerful as you think they are. And second, that this is a battle worth fighting for. The unions and the associations and those who want to protect the interests of government-run schools, they are at the Capitol and they know how to show up and they know how to organize and send emails. But guess what? There's a lot more parents and students out there than there are of them. And they may not be as active and as organized, but there's a lot more votes there than there is from the teachers associations and unions. And parents want this. I can't even express to you the number of letters, the gratitude that is demonstrated by folks from all over West Virginia. And, you know, we decided to call our education savings account program, the HOPE Scholarship, but it truly is giving them hope. I mean, they literally write to me and say, thank you, because for the first time, I have hope that I can get my child what they need.
0: That's pretty amazing. And it is is really a great name for a scholarship account. And I think that any of us who are interested in education certainly watched Red for Ed in West Virginia, not very long ago. So it's a pretty remarkable story. Now, when I asked you the first question, you started to talk a little bit about the American dream. And many people might not know that you actually have this very compelling story that you are an immigrant from Venezuela, you came to the US, now you are a state legislator, you've taught school, you've led this transformational school choice initiative. Can you talk a little bit about how your personal narrative, your life has in your experience have informed your work? And maybe also like how has that informed your willingness to take risks such as the risk that you took in not being reelected by standing up for K to 12 education reform?
2: Well, thank you so much for asking. That's not a question I get very often, but I absolutely love it because I am the embodiment of that American dream, the same dream that so many people, especially out in the media world, say it's dead and they try to portray America as this terrible place, but the reality is there is no other place in the world where you can immigrate, go not be able to speak the language, not have any background, not have any family literally start from nothing and 20 years later be running for office that just does not happen and I am so honored and blessed by the opportunities that I was given I came to this country as a six-year-old I could not even speak my own language well so I had this incredible experience in the public school system that took this young child helped her with her own language development and then taught her English. And within a few short years, I was in honors classes. I had all of these incredible experiences like debate and band and getting to participate in athletics, lots of opportunities to learn all sorts of things. And I will tell you, I never expected to run for public office, but I always, always loved the institution of the United States, the Constitution, the the stories of our founders, and when I get the opportunity to give back, it's just, I just thank God for that, and in terms of how that informs me, as you can imagine, I really believe in that American dream. I think everyone should have the same opportunities, the ability to be able to rise up from wherever they are, and it doesn't matter their background, their color, what language they speak, if they're rich and if they're poor, none of that should matter. Everyone deserves a good education. and Everyone deserves an opportunity to meet their potential.
1: So Senator Rucker, so great to have you join us. I should state up front that my father uh, was born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia. And he graduated many, many years ago from the charleston public school system and his sister my aunt edna williams graduated from the public school system in the city later she went to what was then west virginia institute earned a master's from west virginia university and for 20 plus years was a school teacher in that system when my dad moved west to california los angeles in particular he and my mom decided to enroll me into catholic schools because they were anti-public school they knew and benefited from public education, it was their choice and they wanted to go that route. So wanted to put in perspective. It's always good to hear a voice from somebody who is in West Virginia. Well, that's great to
2: hear. here's
1: Here's a question for you, and our listeners may not know this. Before you became who we now know as Senator Rutger, you were a homeschooling mom for five children while your husband worked two jobs. Talk to our listeners about the experience with homeschooling and how that drove your decision to promote wider school choice once you became an elected official.
2: So I did get the, again, blessed that my husband was willing to work two jobs so that I could stay at home instead of going back to work and I could educate my own children. It was not something I wanted to do. We did attempt to put our oldest child in the public education system. She had some special needs. And it was disheartening to have to deal with the response that the public school had to her special needs. They were very inflexible. They were not listening to what we were saying. And unfortunately, my daughter did not have a very good experience, and they were not able to keep her safe. And after, I think I lasted about 46 weeks, and she was coming home with bite marks and bruises, and I was just going to the school and telling them this is not acceptable. And their response was, well, the only way we could keep her safe in that special education classroom is to lock her up in a high chair so that she is separated from the other kids. And I said, so your answer to keeping her safe is to punish her. That's not an acceptable answer to me. And I kind of, I hate to say it, but I kind of said, no, thank you. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never trained to be an elementary school teacher or special education teacher. And I was a little bit terrified, but I wanted my daughter to obviously be safe and to get what she needed. So I pulled her out, started homeschooling, did tons of reading and research, and we had to privately pay for all the services that she needed. I ended up having another child with special needs, my third child, and had to do all the same, relearning of everything and knowing what he needed and getting him what he needs. But I'm very grateful I had that opportunity and I had the knowledge and the ability. What breaks my heart is that there are parents in those situations who feel they don't have any choices. They don't have either the opportunity, they don't have a spouse that is willing to or able to afford them staying at home, or they don't feel they have the skills Or they know their child needs something and they don't have the funds to get those things that the child needs. I get those stories all the time, ever since I was elected. And I don't know how I can be expected as someone who wants to do the best job I can representing my constituents to not find a solution to help these individuals. These are our citizens, these are people who pay taxes, they live, they're our neighbors, and we're essentially telling them too bad. That was never an acceptable option for me. So it was really a passion that I had to help those who were in the same situation as myself. Their children needed something other than the public education system and didn't have those options.
1: Well, speaking of students with special needs, I'm on the board of an organization called RespectAbility, it's uh, headquartered in Maryland. Our founder, Jennifer Maturani, has been a guest here. And one of the reasons I joined her board based on her invitation is because we work to create an avenue to talk about how people with disabilities and special needs are often viewed or undervalued in American society, not only in schools, but also work. And so when you mention that, I just think about the broader conversation. The fact that punishment was the answer when you were looking for progress just speaks volumes. And naturally we know that some other teachers responded differently. As relates to you, how did your experience with children with special needs and also working in that arena, how did you make that link to school choice? Because there are a lot of opponents of school choice who said for years, That school choice should be abandoned because, guess what, choice programs, particularly private schools, do not take students with special needs. Is that true?
2: I've heard that also, and I've seen for myself that that's not always true. Yes, there are some private schools that cannot handle certain special needs or, or disabilities, but there are lots that do. But in addition to that, again, mostly from my own personal experience where I was able to homeschool my children who had pretty serious special needs without being special ed certified and without really, I started out with no no experience to help me, but I was able to do it and my children, thank God, have succeeded and overcome and are fine. And they're adults now and they're thriving. I know in my heart that we have the capability to overcome all of these things, and special needs can be things like learning delays. It can be an illness, a very severe illness that causes you, for example, like seizures, that to miss out without warning. You know, you miss out on school, you miss out on things and activities. It could be something as not knowing the language, like I had, and having to overcome that issue. speech pathology issues there's so many diversity of special of what can go under the category of special needs. And guess what? Each one has a different response. And each one of those, there are different levels of need within those. You cannot class all the kids that have autism with one way of handling it because they respond to different things and there's different levels and there's different severities. And it's very unique just under that one category. So to expect that a public education system is going to be able to address every single type of special need there is, we're really asking too much of any one system. The reality is the more you individualize the way we treat education and handle individuals, The more we allow for customization, the better they're going to do. And for me, that meant school choice. It meant that for those kids who a classroom of 25 is not the right place, let's help them find what would work for them. And sometimes it is possible to have that innovation and that flexibility within a public school system. I have seen public schools that have been able to do that. But unfortunately, it's not very often, and it almost happens as the exception to the rule instead of the rule. I'm hoping that by introducing the idea of school choice and empowering parents to look into what their kids need, we're going to actually encourage that type of flexibility within the public education system, too.
1: Absolutely. So your state's been almost like a poster child for reform quickly. As Kara mentioned earlier, and you discussed with her, a few years ago, people would have thought this was just unrealistic for a place like West Virginia, but you're moving forward. Other states have also expanded uh, choice programs. Families of faith have also been prime movers of the school choice legislation. Could you talk to us about the role of parent coalitions and the diversity within it to make what you have in West Virginia a reality today?
2: Well, thank you so much for bringing that up. One of the most important lessons learned from my first attempt to pass my education savings account, I did not organize or reach out for coalition partners, and that really was part of the reason for why it did fall apart with the associations being able to basically kill that attempt. The second time around, I learned from that experience, and way, way ahead of time, before the session ever began, I started reaching out to what I would consider interested parties. So, for example, private schools. And I asked them what they would think about legislation that would allow us to have education savings account and explain to it what it was. And they were excited about the thought and the possibilities of it, and I said, well, I need you all to organize. I need you all to help educate others. I need you all to be advocates for this if I end up introducing this legislation. And then I did the same thing with parents. I had several town halls where I was educating them about what it is, what we're trying to do and why, and and asking the same things. I, I need you all to work on your legislators, to talk to those people who represent you to help me get this done. So we started early on and that was a huge difference so the second time around the successful time in 2020 that was a big difference we were getting letters emails and visits from parents and individuals in support and it wasn't just the association setting the narrative and i should point out that at this time we're talking this was after covid parents were pretty upset with the way that most of the public schools handled COVID with the fact that schools were closed down. There were teachers who were refusing to return to work. And in the meantime, they had to return to work, but had nowhere to put their children. Remote learning was a disaster. All of those things helped to really energize those parents who were looking for something different and something better. And so all of that played a role.
1: Well, I'm going to go ahead and close us out. Again, great to hear your voice. Great to have you in public policy. Great to have your story a part of the American dream. Glad to hear West Virginia anchored in conversations about reform. Often when we hear about the mountain State, it's for all the negative things, but there are a lot of great things growing in that state and you're playing a role in that. So just know Karen and I are here to be supportive of you and your work. And at some point when I know I'm coming to Your state. I'll let you know, and hopefully uh, we can get together at some point and talk more about this in person.
2: I would love that. Thank you so much, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about West Virginia.
0: Yeah, and hopefully I'll be invited too, I just want to say, because (laughs) I also, you're a good good John Denver, Senator Rucker, so just we we can do a little... We'll have a little party (laughs) featuring karaoke by Gerard Robinson. Thank you so much for your time today. It was just wonderful speaking with you, and thank you for your great work.
2: Thank you so much. You guys have a great day.
0: Take care. Gerard, as always, we're going to close it out with our tweet of the week. And this one, oh, favorite topic of mine. We have talked about this before. It's from Education Next. And it says, quote, so long as admissions exams are intended to fairly apportion opportunities to talented students, age allowances are appropriate. And so this article is about birthday bias. It's about how high state tests and fairness and What I love about this is that we want to be sure that we've got opportunities for everyone, including our most talented students, and it's a great article. I highly suggest it. And next week, Gerard, I know you're unable, you're a busy man, and I'm going to have a guest host with me next week, but we are going to be speaking to Professor Paula Giddings. She is the Elizabeth A. Woodson Professor Emerita of Africana Studies at Smith College, and she is the author of A Sword Among Lions, Ida B. Wells, and The Campaign Against Lynching. Boy, I am looking forward to that one. Gerard, I'm going to miss you. I do think we're going to be here with a special guest host who is a friend of the show, but I hope that whatever it is you're doing, I know it's always something of great import because you are one of the busiest people I know, my friend. So,
1: Well, sorry, I won't get a chance to share the conversation with you next week. Our guest is a graduate of Howard. Uh, So always glad to see that author of a book on Delta Sigma Theta, uh, African-American female sorority founded at Howard University. And she has got so much great stuff in addition to that book. So I look forward to being a listener at that time and look forward to joining you the following week, my friend.
0: Yeah. Well, until then, yeah, I'll miss you and you take care best to your family. And we will, of course, be back with updates on all of the Pioneer Institute centric goings on in Boston. It's like it's just a bit old soap opera over here, Gerard. You take care of yourself. Have a good one.
1: Enjoy Bean Town and watch the beans being thrown at you.
0: <laughs> they, as they are. They certainly are. Take care.